In this episode of the Culture Perth and Ken Ross podcast, you join us again to hear Dr. Nikki Small chatting with retired forester Sid House. Sid has spent 35 years with the Forestry Commission and was especially inspired by local writer Thomas Hunter and his book, which chronicled all the great Perthshire estates, the tree planting and specimen trees. We are joined Sid and Nikki in the garden as they discuss planting in the cars of Gowrie. I mean, this research has been astounding, really, in lots of ways. What? I mean, you haven't, I haven't touched as well what you said about the monkey puzzle, and we've talked a wee bit about Douglas and things, but, um, I mean, he's, he's expanded on the estate and gone to the estate paper. So um, the, other, the other area that we're, we haven't quite mentioned is the car, so I think you'd mentioned that to me before, um, but that's a different planting there. We've yeah, been at orchards and things. Yeah, there. well, the, the, the historic, the historic, there are the some historic areas in the Cars of Gary go back to the time of the monks, the great uh, religious houses that came to Perth and uh, areas close by Perth and some of the best land of course was uh, in the Carse in the low-lying land um, by the by the river and uh, monks were given that in various places I think Meginch State was formerly yes. a religious house yeah. and um, they planted a lot of orchards hence why some of our traditional varieties like the bloody plowman or you know uh, apple tradition of apple and a lot of pears um, were um, uh, first grown there, and in fact, I think you can see yew trees uh, on Meginch, yeah. which are a thousand. No, the yew tree. Yeah, the, again, I mean, our most famous yew. I mean, that's one of the big, big country trees is the yew at Fortingall, the Fortingall as well. Yew, so, I mean, that's in Hunter's book as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so he, he talks about all these remarkable trees and a lot of the history. Some of it legend, and yeah. he's a good enough writer <laughs> to make that interesting. And, and 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 I think he's part of a more objective world as well, where they are seriously looking at what actually might. Be the best thing to do now based on observation and trial mm-hmm. so he's not you know myth and legend and history and even the romance of it is so is there but also is the uh, the keen eye of an improver and a good listener uh, well he's a good journalist as well isn't he he does his research yeah. and he's obviously I, gone through some of the papers in different places as well like um, you know the archives and whatnot at, at Mursley yeah. or at um, Blair as well to find and, out some and information. What's interesting, you can go through here. I mean, some of he's a student of some of these uh, introductions and, and always looking for uh, reading the landscape. It's one of the right. one of the things I, I, I think is very interesting. Uh, you know, to know the landscape looks like it's natural, but in fact, you look here and where we're looking now, you can see yeah. the head dike from the improved land below it. So you're seeing that line, if you like, in the... In and then the you can see beyond that, beyond, which uh-huh. is the unimproved land. And okay. actually, predominantly, that's where the the, uh, the woodland is there, because that would have been seen as less valuable from an agricultural point of view. But similarly, you can see... What, what know, are we looking at over here? There's an awful lot of trees. I mean, that, that's, well, was that Forestry Commission at one point as that well? That was, but these would have been estate woodlands. Right. And you can go back to old maps and see the Forestry Commission, of course, came only came into being from 1919. But you can go back before that, and, and on the old maps, they'll show you what was wooden. And very often it was the land that was least valuable for agriculture. It would be wet, boggy. Sometimes, I mean, without going into too much detail, the, the glaciers had come through this part and it scoured out or transferred um, material from one part to another, some of which was very difficult to improve from right. a farming point of view. And that's maybe where you planted your trees. And and what about um, I'm I'm interested too because I've, I've we've done a little bit of work on on Lindock in another podcast and we've looked at his estate up here. At, well, there's Balgowan and Dalcru, um, uh, where he he had been. But um, I walked there with uh, Tom Huxley, who'd written a book about his his local improvements and his improving you know 
philosophies, if you like, on the land. But what you can still see there is where he had done that, you know, where these, where you go somewhere that you think is naturally beautiful with a lovely big oak in the middle of a, a you know, that's actually all created, which yes. I hadn't been aware of. I thought that was kind of natural. But of course, um, this echoes what happens down south as well when we see these lovely period dramas and you see all that rolling meadow beyond all the, the house. Landscape. It's all designed. There is no square foot of the view that we're looking at that hasn't been touched by people through their land management practices over three, four thousand years. I mean, and reading reading the papers, one thing I'm very interested in is in Woods Forest and Estates, maybe look up some of these, the, the um, Chronicle of Athol, is how often the Duke is writing to his man, you know, his, either it's surveying work or it's... And he's giving an account all the time of what's what the planting's been done, what's happened here with the sheep, what's going on. And it makes you think when you're out walking, oh, God, these people knew every inch of the hill, they knew every bit of their own land and... I'm talking about all of this kind of area, but I mean, it's the same for all of these estates then. They would have people that would walk and know. And they, they would, Can uh, we walk anywhere now that you can't, you haven't been somebody has <laughs> been before? No, no, I don't think we can. I mean, I think it's all been influenced. You know, the great bare hills uh, um, and open moors and landscapes will all have been managed, whether it be for agriculture or sporting for grouse or yes, for deer, of so. uh, or indeed uh, uh, converted into woodland forestry plantations at whatever period. So, no, there's nowhere. And you're right about the great landowners, and it was almost seems a duty. Although, when you read those landowners who went gambling in Monte Carlo or <laughs> down in London, or who it makes you wonder sometimes how they ever got anything, anything done. done. But I think this is a great tribute. It's interesting how we don't often know as much about the factors yeah. or the foresters, with some notable exceptions. Uh -huh. I mean, there's a lovely man who was the head steward on Methven Castle Estate, Thomas right. Bishop. Bishop. I think he was called the land steward. Uh, uh, he was there for about 60 years, and he wrote his own memoir called Memorabilia de Methven. And in it, he, he basically described every tree that he planted he over 60 years. Everything. Covering this sort of period from the early... Um, 19th century up to the Amazing. late time, including cutting all the oak in Methven wood at the time of the Napoleonic Wars, and how they made a fortune out of that. Right. And then, of course, the market collapsed in peacetime. Uh, uh, I, 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 you know, it's absolutely um, fascinating to read. But I think these these guys, they, and they were generally yeah. men. That's not to say there weren't uh, women who took an interest in the states and land. There were. Well, there would be female landowners, but yeah, would, they wouldn't really go into the profession, would they, until much later? No, until much later. Yeah. yeah. But you can, I mean, I also like, you can pick out threads here. For example, um, I'm very interested in uh, uh, David Douglas's original introductions, so I've already mentioned a couple of examples. But, in fact, I was just reading this the other day, and had picked this up, Rossi Priory Estate. In it, Hunter talks about a Douglas fir planted there in 1826. Okay. Now, in 1826, that they could only have got the seed in 1826, because I know the dates when Douglas landed in um, on the mouth of the Columbia River between Washington and Oregon mm -hmm. State today um, in 1825. And then he collected Douglas fir virtually that whole summer seed and autumn and dispatched it back. So the earliest it would have got back to um, to the UK would probably early 1826. Okay. Um, and that Easy. must have been then dispatched to different uh, owners and what have you and shared it amongst them. Maybe some of us went to Schoon and they in turn, turn shared it with Rossi 
Right. And certainly one or two other places. Would that have been highly longer. sought after, though? I mean, would yes. people really be desperate to see what he was bringing and sending back? It's a bit of rage. It oh, was really? a bit like, um, what's the, the keynote now? It's fashion, having, isn't it? It's fashion, yeah. <laughs> and so having trees, and these, these, these plants, individual plants, would change hands for, you know, 15, 20 guineas. We're talking about guineas. Yeah, That's lot, yeah. more than somebody's whole salary for a year. Yeah. So you made sure you looked after it. But anyway, they had a uh, Douglas fir planted in 1826. And then... And tell me about the, the other thing. I've walked with you before um, and, and gone down the Carsagowdy and you've pointed out the, the giant redwoods, which um, once you get your eye in, that's one of your sayings, once you get your eye in and you start spotting these big monsters, because they are really, they're huge and yeah. very impressive. When you travel along um, the whole of the Carsagowdy, you start seeing them all the time. Sorry, my dog's under um, at our feet snoring, if anyone's hearing that, but um, it's such a lovely uh, afternoon you here. You've heard me talk before. <laughs> talking. But, um, yeah, um, but they go on, the giant redwoods, I mean, once you see those um, and start recognising them, then you start picking this out when you're walking. You, you do, and it's a lovely story. Um, uh, Patrick Matthews, a very interesting character in his own right, sort of a polymath, uh, a great uh, horticulturist, land improver, um, uh, but wrote on all sorts of subjects, education, yeah, yeah. engineering. He complained that the Tay Bridge hadn't been properly constructed and then several years after he died, of course, it fell down. Is he in the... And he's in, in the book. He's There's in a little the uh, mention of it. But the interesting story about, uh, about uh, him is that his sons, uh, who eventually ended up in New Zealand and I had the pleasure of visiting where they went to in New Zealand really? setting up the orchards. Amazing. They travelled there via the California Gold Rush in about 1850 two round about there in 1852 and they sent they, they, at the time the giant redwoods had been discovered and they were looked on as a huge natural phenomenon and um excited lots of, of debate and discussion or size of them yeah and um matthew's sons being great obviously brought up in and in, in the same uh, with the same approach as their father collected seed from these trees and from the Calaveras Grove in the Sierra Nevada Mountains, sent it back to their father yeah. near Errol. Back to humble Errol. <laughs> which they arrived in 1853, and he grew on uh, seed from the trees in uh, 1850s and then gifted them out to all his neighbouring landowners. landowners. So you can go from Perth, because um, actually he'd been, he'd been born on, on Schoon Estate. Right. Uh, just opposite the mouth of the almond, mm -hmm, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore friendly there. Lots of others. And uh, Kinnaird, you'll find them, yeah. Ballandine Estate in China, Glendoic, Megan, she already mentioned, uh, as well as the uh, Gurdy Hill. Gurdy Hill was pretty his. Pretty close to yeah. his, uh, yeah. near to Errol. And, um, and one or two other places, and you can find those original uh, giant redwoods. Because once you see them, you just can't exactly. not see them. Can't not see them. <laughs> yes. And um, funnily enough, there was a professional uh, um, plant collector, Thomas Lobb, who actually collected seed just six months after Patrick Matthews and took them back right. to the nursery. He was employed by Vici's Nursery in Exeter and also grew seed there. And they dispatched seed, and that's also been planted in Perthshire. Well, um, and Perth had the, the big seed company as well now, um, the famous did. one. Bellwood. Yes. Um, uh, so they, on Canoe Hill. Yes. So, they, they, so, so what, again, once you get your eye in, you can actually spot these individual trees. And, and all that kind of... When you talk to Inch Chewer, yeah. 
we see that a lot of the redwoods round there came from this original introduction to a Patrick Matthew. Now, the other lovely thing about this book, and before we finish up, I want to talk about, is, um, is the little plates and the pictures that you can see in it. Yeah. Because this is another aspect for our, from our collections, because there are little um, engravings, but these were all done from original photographs by one of the early photographers of Perthshire, uh, Magnus Jackson. Um, and there are two absolutely stunning books in the A.K. Bell Library, with Magnus Jackson um, photographs, um, which I love, um, and hadn't actually related to the book um, until until we were talking about it, actually, because you know those photographs well, because you've obviously looked at the collections too, and there are wider, obviously, Magnus Jackson collections in, in, our, in our museum in Perth, but um, I love the pictures. They're just amazing. If you get the chance to see them, um, you know, and of course, Jackson always puts a person in, so you get that kind of scale, yes. so you can, you can see... Gentleman um, of the Road very often, or, <laughs> or a woodman. Uh, he's a great favourite, a gentleman of the road uh, up at Athol, who wore a kilt, long beard and kilt, and one of the high loaders type walking sticks. Oh, right, know, okay. And um, that give, the point of that was to give you scale. It's yes. something that um, my old professor at university used to do, and then I learned how to do it. So when you see all my photographs of trees over my you, career, there's always someone in there in holding, there, a, holding something. To, and the point is to give perspective, to give because perspective. you don't know it's a big or a small tree. And that's actually very difficult. I mean, that's, I think, I mean, you're right about Magnus Jackson. Um, it's just a great piece of work. To yeah. be given that, I was actually, at time I was researching the book on David Douglas, and um, uh, it was Jeremy Duncan, the old... Yeah, uh, he was uh, the, the uh, local studies local librarian. Studies, yeah. Gave me the book to look at. And um, in, the, in that book... There are photographs um, using Magnus Jackson's original technique, yep. which is actually extremely clear yeah. um, uh, and almost in depth. You can almost see three. In fact, I think some of them were taken in a three D yes, technique. Yes, yes, they have that quality. Yeah, right? and mm -hmm. um, uh, they're remarkably clear. And he wrote a paper on how to photograph trees. Were his favourite subject or hobby, as well as country houses. So in a summer's day, uh, he would travel out. At four or five in the morning, or indeed camp out overnight, to get up early in the morning when for the it was right, still... For the right light. And because he had to have long exposure to get the right light to photograph the trees. He would research it all and so on. It's amazing. And, and he worked in collaboration with... I mean, he'd been doing this over a number of years, from the 1850s and 60s. He ultimately was to become the photo official photographer of the Royal Scottish Arboricultural Society. Right. Now the Royal Scottish Forest Society. Mm -hmm. And they have a, a whole collection of his photographs as well. Never quite understood... Uh, they never quite understood so uh, the significance of those. But so Jackson, who's a famous photographer in his own right, certainly in photographing trees is right, is, is is way ahead of his time. Yeah. And so we can now look at those original introductions, including the parent Douglas firs and other trees, and see what they look like today. Well, and he he um, I mean maybe some of them. I mean I think the 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 Fortingall U is there, which people can still visit today. Um, there's a twin one on the banks of Loch. I think is that is it is it a twin? You think of the of, of the, tri the the twin oaks? Yeah, is that yeah. is that another one? It's out by the River Tay. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's a lovely one. one. And um, and of course there's um, there's the Dublin Oracaria. Is that another one that's labelled yeah, in the, the book as well? There's yeah. a whole number of them. He's got um, uh, Western Hemlocks, Douglas firs. He's got Sitka spruce, which at that time was called Mingus spruce. Right. Uh, named after, after Archibald Mingus, right, okay, yeah, yeah. which we still called it that. It would be a lot easier to describe it as a Scottish connected tree yeah. when I'm explaining why <laughs> forest is planted. But, um, yeah, I, and, and he, um, uh, Magnus Jackson, um, 
was uh, awarded a gold medal by the Royal Scottish Arboricultural Society at the 1884 World Forestry Exhibition in the grounds of Donaldson School in Edinburgh. And I'm lucky I've got a catalogue of that exhibition Fantastic. and it's a fascinating reading. And, and what that does is show the amount of interest there was, and that was of course across Empire and Russia and North America. Those South images America, were going tropical. out to other places. Yeah, and um, uh, uh, but the interest, the interest in Scotland, of course, was was very often sourcing timber from these other virgin forests from other parts of the world. Well, of course, now we've moved full circle with um, the aftermath of World War One and a, a shortage of timber to now creating our own woods. And of course, the work of um, somebody like uh, all these lairds and estates recorded by, by someone Hunter. like Hunter. Mm -hmm gives you a great insight into the period. And, and I can read you one bit, which I think is absolutely um, fascinating well, a from quote, a, quote, a quote from the book. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, there's the lots of little estate. anecdotes. I mean, I would urge anyone to try and get a hold of this book and come into the library, certainly once once um, uh, things are, are up and running again. But um, it's a wonderful book. I think you'll probably find it online in some aspects of it yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is some writing about Murthley, is it? Yeah, and this is, bear in mind, this is 1884. Okay. So we're um, 35 years before the founding of the Forestry Commission, which is 100 years old, which was 100 years old last, last year. year. Yep. And so he's saying that, and this is Murthley, what is really wanted nowadays to supply the rapidly increasing demand is a tree that will grow quickly into good, useful timber. And a comparison of the growth of Douglas fir and Sitka spruce with the growth of large Scots fir and Norway spruce, which were the then... Um, the, the big planting trees, yeah. is to be seen at Murthley and is very much in favour of the former, that is, the Christmas and Douglas fir. He then goes over and does some various calculations. So there is here undoubtedly a great difference in the bulk of the timber produced, much more than would repay the difference. So he's really advocating that these two trees are going to be the ones that will replace. And he's quite right then, isn't he? In he is. Douglas fir, not so, because Douglas fir is very much more demanding in site conditions. In other words, you need to have good soil but to the grow mingus, Douglas. The mingus. But citrus spruce will grow virtually everywhere. So he you know, predicted what was what evidence before their eyes. And of course, when the forest came into being in 1919, they employed mainly estate foresters. So they would, and there are records of, you know, visits by the Royal Scottish Arboricultural Society coming to look at all these trees and having learned debates and discussions. And do you think a lot of these people, I mean, this would be like a kind of little Bible for them, they would have gone back to a book like this? Yes. Do you think, well, I mean, how did you share? I mean, this is the modern, this is the internet of the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is how you shared knowledge and so on. So, um, I mean, a gentleman in his library uh, on the estate would have uh, this sort of book. Would definitely have that book. And when you look, at this book that I have here, Donald Mackenzie, is it? it so looks Donald like Mackenzie, yeah. Garth Fortingall, October twenty eighth, eighteen eighty five. So that was that you've yeah you've come into that. I, I bought this in a second hand bookshop thirty years ago. So look out for them; they're quite rare. They are the most fantastic books. It needs a bit of attention, but there you go. There's living proof yeah. of how that was used. It's lovely. And I think, I mean, I mean, Thomas Hunter, a remarkable man. I mean, I think his journalistic career is quite interesting as well. The fact that he, he was editor and owner of the Perthshire Constitutional. His sons were in that line. But here he is. He's taken a, a good idea that went down well with people and changed that into an interest. And he's what he set out you know, to do was to write a history of forestry in Scotland. And in actual fact, that's, that's pretty much... Um, 
Yeah, we, we talk, there's a lovely phrase I came across before. I wish I'd thought of it. Uh, you know, Perth should have been the cradle of the Scottish forest renaissance. And it really pays homage to the planting lairds. Mm-hmm. Athol, you know, Taymouth, Scoon, and so on, who, did, uh, who started off a lot of this work in the 18th century and continued it. And agitated for tree planting before World War One mm-hmm. and government indifference. And, and look at us now with, with um, you global know, warming, with global warming, climate change. Climate change yeah. people, the are, people are calling for trees again. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's interesting. Um, uh, you know, the, the the rationale for establishing the Forestry Commission in 1919 was to provide timber so that you could prop up the mines to get coal out, and probably more importantly mines. to get them the coal out the mines to keep industry going. And here we are, 100 years later, talking about climate change and mitigating, and we want timber to plant trees to actually soak up uh, CO2, mitigate global warming, and also to replace non-reusable. I mean, the great thing about timber is it's a huge uh, um, recyclable material. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, man's original source of warmth. Amazing. Well, um, I just love it. It's a wonderful book for some of the tidbits about the families and the things that go on there as well in terms of social history. But it's also a hugely informative book if you're going to go out and walk in any of these states. And it gives you a wonderful idea of what you're seeing, what you're looking at. Um, And if you're lucky enough, you can walk with somebody like Sid and he'll tell you himself. Um, So thanks, Sid, for for talking to us today about um, a wonderful book, Thomas Hunter's Woods, Forests and the Estates of Perthshire. Nikki is currently searching for people who have worked in forestry or in woodland management or on estates for a forest memories project. We hope to hear from people if they have any stories or experiences of working in the sector. We would like to invite interview people and hear stories, so please get in touch. <laughs>